This episode is sponsored by our friends at Dukan. Launch your online store in 30 seconds. No coding or design skills required. Whether you are a small business trying to go online, a teacher looking to set up digital presence, or you just want to sell a goat, Dukan is your one-stop solution. At the start of the pandemic, when small businesses were struggling, Dukan helped over a million merchants move from offline to online. Founder of Dukan is also Billion Moonshots alumni. He shared his story of making $25,000 per month in college to now building a $100 million startup. So start your 14-day free trial now at mydukan.io. All right, so Jenna, up until 2020, you led product marketing at Uber Eats, and now you're building super massive. You're basically helping artists how to make money via NFT. Uh, but before we talk about that, let's get into this. So you taught Elon Musk how to kite surf. What was that all about? All right, getting right into my icebreaker. I love that. Yeah. So this is this is what I I used to use as my fun fact uh, when I was in a new group or joined a new company. Uh, so I, I taught Elon Musk how to kite surf unknowingly. Uh, I was at a tech event filled with kite surfers. I had been kite surfing for a long time. A friend of mine walked up to me and said, hey, I, we have we have a friend of the group. He wants to learn how to kite. Um, he's got the equipment. Can you help show him some things? By the way, kite surfing is not an easy thing to learn. It's, right. it's, it's a very, very steep learning curve. Uh, so I was a little nervous because it's something that you where you definitely want to take lessons. And I am not a trained instructor by any means, just a hobbyist, uh, someone who enjoys it. Uh, and he introduces me to Elon. He's like, this is my friend, Elon. He's really interested to learn. Elon has all the equipment. Uh, and he's Elon's like, great, what do we do first? And I'm like, well, we should fly the kite on the beach and start figuring it out. Uh, and so we, we pump up the kite, we get them launched. And by the way, kites are big and they're very powerful. And so you are attached to something that can throw you in the air. It can drag you. It's way more power than you need. And you are strapped hmm. in by the waist. You have a lot of ejection buttons, uh, but you're essentially attached to a sail. And, right. and so this is the first time he's ever done it whatsoever. Uh, and so usually you teach them all, here's the ejection things. He was like, I don't care. Like, we'll figure it out when we get there. Launch the kite. I launched the kite. He's like struggling with the kite, but I'm trying to give him instructions. <laughs> and he's like, hand me the board. I'm going to the water. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so he basically gave him very few instructions and like went to the water with him, tried to drag through the water with him. And he was just like, we'll figure this out. Um, so now I, I later learned who he was. And now it makes so much sense to me how he's done what he's done. He just grabs the bull by the horns and goes for it. No, no fear. Um, he never ended up truly getting up on the board. We ended up saving him with a jet ski. Uh, but, he, you know, he made the first steps. Right, right. Oh, wow. Okay. So you think he's a fast learner? Is he a fast learner? Uh, I don't even know if I could comment on that. It's more just like his risk tolerance. Hmm. This to him seemed not scary in any way. And a lot of the information didn't seem important. He would just figure it out. Right. Uh, yeah, which you know seems like how he's been able to build so many companies. He has this idea. He's like, let's just start building. We'll figure it out. That's, that's, that's really cool. Like, uh, is kite surfing dangerous? Like, I would imagine that, okay, if you drown, if you just go, if you keep flying, uh, you will just get into a weird space or something. Yes. Yes, it's very dangerous. <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. And when you saw him, like, you didn't know that he was Elon Musk? No. So this was in 2011 or 12. Okay. So he wasn't yeah. famous yet. He wasn't famous. Uh, I actually don't even know had he started Tesla at the time. He he might have. And he was introduced to me. There were several, the event was mostly tech people. So I just thought he was just another tech person. Um, and no one, yeah, he, no one really 
talked about him or who he was. And he's, he's quite awkward. Uh, so we didn't really, you know, there wasn't much pleasantries. It was just like, let's go kiting. Wow. Okay. That's, <laughs> that, that is really cool. Wait, I want to dive into the other one. So you also mentioned that the time I emailed the new Uber CEO, I'm guessing you're talking about Dara. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This is, this is fun. Um, so Dara, so when I was at Uber for four years, hmm. uh, I was there for the transition of Travis to Dara, a hard transition for the company. Uh, and Uber had gone through a bunch of ups and downs in, externally and internally politically. Hmm. Uh, and, and so Dara was coming into a company that had, you know, been through a lot, the delete Uber phase, uh, their, the Susan Fowler uh, incident. Uh, and so he was kind of tiptoeing into the company. Uh, and he sent out an email uh, to the company about how he feels that decision-making is not clear in meetings and that it needs to be more defined in the meeting who has the D. And so what he meant by that is who has the decision in that meeting. <laughs> but of course, he's at a company filled with millennials. And right. so he sent out this email and he repeated it in all hands and the company just erupted. Every Slack channel, um, every meeting <laughs> was just, it, it became this huge joke. And this is after Uber had been through so much. Right. <laughs> so he was just horrified. And so he, he, I think he was like a month into the CEO position. Right. Uh, and so I, I remember, so I'm from Canada, born and raised in Canada and Canada had, they did a campaign about how you needed to get vitamin D. Okay. And so they had posters all over the country that said, you got to get your D. And so there's pictures of these smiling people uh, with a big headline that says, got to get your D. If you Google this, uh, it's pretty funny. And so I sent him a bunch of these billboards. I sent him an email with pictures of the billboards and I said, don't worry, Canada did it, but way worse. Uh, and he emailed me back immediately and said, I really needed this. Thanks for sending. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> that, that is crazy. Yeah. He's definitely feeling like a big shoe over there and also like helping transition towards a better future of Uber. So he has to be super careful about uh, the wordings and the PR. That, that's, that's crazy. Oh, what an extremely hard position to come into. Yeah. An extremely hard company, um, extremely hard time. Definitely. But it seems like he's he's doing a good job. Definitely. He's doing a great job. What have you seen? Like, so when I was at Microsoft, it was not exactly the same situation, but sort of people were realizing how Satya Nadella had like, you know, totally transitioned Microsoft. But you were there when it was in that hard transition. How did you feel the culture was like one year back, mm. one year ahead? Oh, man. Uh, I So I liked a lot of elements of the old culture, which some of that was Travis, and there's good mm. and there's bad. There's a lot of bad elements. Um, I think the good pieces of the culture uh, is they the company was growing so fast, and the company is very innovative, and that was very much promoted within the culture. Try things, break things, apologize later, we'll figure it out. Um, and we did a lot of things wrong and broke a lot of things, uh, but innovation happened really quickly inside the company, and anyone could do it. So someone, for example, Uber Eats, someone in the company came up with that idea and said we could deliver food. And at the time, their idea was we'll put a bunch, we need to utilize trunks. We have all of these cars driving around on the road, and they're not fully utilized. That's a waste of space. How do hmm. we, you know, we can only put people in seats, but they all have these empty trunks and we're they use all this energy to travel around with this empty vessel. How can we be more efficient? And so the idea was they could stop by restaurants during lunch hour, fill up their trunk and then deliver that during the lunch hour, which wow. is often when Uber is not busy. So you could take a driver and make sure that they're always busy. You could fill the trunk. And that was just a few, it was someone in the company who had this idea. He brought in a few other people to run the analysis and then they're like, let's go try it. That's how Uber Eats developed. That's how um, Uber Freight started. And so people just in the company came up with things. 
Uh, I think that changed a lot when Dara came in because it's hard to have that culture when you become a big company and when you when you go public. So some of this might be just the maturity of the company versus the leader. Uh, but right. Dara is a much more conservative leader than Travis was when it comes to product and innovation. And so he that's probably the nature of where they are, meaning they need to get profitable, they need to make this sustainable long term, whereas Travis was, you know, speed and size is is our main metric. Everybody everybody go. Uh, so it did feel very different. The type of people that were attracted to come work at Uber were different. They came from, I would say, more corporate backgrounds. Uh, early Uber was a lot of former mm. entrepreneurs. It, it felt like the Wild West. I, I remember when I first joined, I, the, the thing with Uber is they were like, we're not going to pay you very much. It's not going to be a salary like the other tech companies, but we are going to give you more responsibility. And so you were going to get to work on things that you didn't get, you're not going to get to work on if you take another job that may pay you more. And so that was kind of the value prop going in. And so you had a bunch of very scrappy young people, a lot of them coming out of banking or consulting jobs where they made a lot but didn't enjoy what they did. And you would get handed just massive responsibility. I remember there, was, there was two of us on Uber Eats on the marketing side uh, until a billion dollar run rate. So from wow. that perspective, we were like, we're two marketers who hmm. basically were the head of marketing for a billion dollar company. Um, you would never have that opportunity at, at most startups. Um, and so that's that, that the old culture of Uber was built on that scrappy people with a, too, maybe too much responsibility. Right. I remember reading the entire story of Uber. Uh, I forgot what was the book's name, but it was by a New York Times seller. Do you, do you remember the I was name? Super Pumped. Yeah. Super Pumped. Yes, yes. I was like, wait, it's a really cool name, but I totally forgot what the name was. But yeah, Super Pumped. I remember like during COVID, I was reading, I was reading a lot of books and that was one of them. Loved it. Uh, there's, there's also a lot of really cool stories. Like, I don't know uh, if you guys talk about this or not now, but the gray ball incident, uh, that mm -hmm. was that was like a cool story. It's bad, but it's cool. It's bad, uh, yeah. yeah. That, it's, would, it's, that would be an example of the bad things that... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. Like, it's like, you know, um, when you think about innovation, it's innovative, but mm -hmm. the way it, it was done, that was bad. But yeah, it's like, you know, in your mind, you were str you're struggling to categorize it that way. Should you say it's bad or it's like you know it's cool and mm -hmm. you should do it further when you move forward and startups and be scrappy and stuff uh but i'm curious like what made you quit uber oh i so i was there for four years right. and i was there through that transition where it just it felt like the company changed Hmm. Uh, and so it didn't feel like, you know, roles got more specific and defined. Uh, and it felt like a big company, but I joined at 6,000 people. A year later, it was 12,000 people. Four years later, it was 22,000 people. Uh, and so the, the company was just different. Uh, I have, I came from a startup background, so I've always been at, at startups. And so I like the, I, I like building from scratch. And so the things that I worked on Uber were a lot of things from scratch. I started on Eats when it was two cities. I worked on our vehicle solutions program at the very beginning. Uh, and, and so I missed some of that. Uh, so it was mostly just a change in culture. Uh, that said, I still believe in Uber as a company. Um, I believe it's a fantastic product. Uh, when I worked there, a lot of drivers in many countries were very happy. Um, they, they felt excited to have a job that they could do at their own free will anytime they wanted an ability to make money with a click out of a button. Um, and I think, I think that's really powerful. Uh, but you know, two years ago when I left, I was excited to go back into startup land. Right. Also, I love the story that you mentioned about the origin of Uber Eats, like the thought that, Hey, these trunks, they're empty. Let's fill them up. Uh, I believe I was recently talking to a founder, uh, who was working in micro mobility. And when I learned more about it, that's exactly the conversation that they have. They're like, wait, these are huge trucks that are mm -hmm. moving around 
getting only this one person, you don't even need that much energy. So it's really cool when you put it that way that, okay, you don't need that much energy. You're wasting so much. And then you're complaining about gas prices. Uh, but all right, let's, let's move on. So let's move on to where was your head at when during COVID, when before you found it super massive, what were the things that you were thinking about? So I left, I left Uber in 2020 and I bought a one-way ticket, let's see, February of 2020. And I bought a one-way ticket to Asia. And I thought okay. this was before COVID. It was sort of happening. It was small. It hadn't really made its way into the news in the U.S. Uh, and my plan was to just go travel and spend six months off and decide what to do next. Uh, and that got cut short. Uh, and I, I was spending time in uh, Bali and Indonesia. I had been in Tokyo. But it became very clear in March after being away for five weeks that this was not a good decision. Uh, so I flew back um, and I was trying to decide what to do next. Um, I, I, so I'm a consumer marketer background. I, I really like the cons consumer space um, and I really like media. Uh, so mm -hmm. I started my career at Universal Music. Um, and even though I found myself into tech, pretty, found myself to tech pretty quickly, I knew that in the long term, I always wanted to be somewhere in the intersection of tech and media. And so when I came home, I joined a video game company called Aim Lab. And this was my first step into video games, which is actually a very different world than tech. Uh, and a gamer is a very different consumer or user than someone who's using Uber. Uh, but the one of the things that was very different from a marketing perspective is that we didn't run traditional advertising. And so mm. gamers don't respond to ads the way that someone might respond to an ad, ad for Uber. So the way that you learn about a new game is through someone credible, which is usually an influencer Twitch or streamer. a friend of yours. Yeah, exactly. Who's seen an influencer talk about the game. So that's usually YouTubers, Twitch streamers. So I was spending most of my time working with influencers. Hmm. And so in, at the, let's see, this is beginning of 2020, uh, by unintentionally, I was having the deepest dive you could have into the creator economy, uh, which was blowing up in 2020. And people were starting to realize the full potential. And I had a front row seat talking to creators every single day. Uh, and so that's where I started thinking about what was, you know, I, I was asking them what's working, what's not. Um, and I, I had this, you know, this itch where I couldn't stop thinking about what I had learned at Universal in the music industry. And so I spent a year with, with the video game company. And after that, uh, I knew I wanted to solve in the creator space as well as for music. Uh, and so that is what led to Supermassive a, a year and change later. Nice. You mentioned that you learned some things at Universal Music. What were those? Like, what do you think was different in music? So the, the thing about music, so everyone will tell you this, but uh, I can explain it more concretely, which is everyone will tell you that music is broken. Hmm. Uh, and and it's, is it that the music industry is broken? No, it's working. It's rather that it's not very innovative. And so you have, uh, you have a lot of artists who are very smart, who hmm. make great music, great content. Um, and you have a lot of people who love music. In fact, you can't even imagine your life without Everybody. it. Everybody, yeah. Everybody. Yet the music industry, if you actually look at it under the hood, has very little products. They are very bad at creating products. So they go to hmm. an artist and they say, okay, you can record an album and you can distribute that album and then you can go on tour. Maybe we'll make some merch and those are your options. If your catalog becomes big enough, we might go sell it for, we might go sell it for sync licensing and that's, you know, commercials and video and sync licensing is a whole 
another you know area. But these are kind of the the product options for artists. So there's been mm. very little innovation. Um, so that's one piece: very little product innovation and offerings for artists. Uh, the second piece is when I look at the music industry, I feel like so I worked in licensing. So I worked in the sync department, and the way that licensing would work is is a, a producer, someone who's making content like you are right now, uh, would call us and say, "Hey, we're making content. We want this song." And then I would open up a folder. I would try. I would look at that catalog, and I try to get a sense of what people had paid in the past. And then I would try to get as much information as I could from that producer on the budget of their their project. And then we would just give them a number. Uh, and it was to try to make as much as as we could possible. Hmm. Uh, so in music, there the pricing has not really been thought through. If you think about you as a consumer on Spotify, you actually pay very little. For music compared to other media, compared to I what think, you pay you know at movies, games, yeah. right? So you know what? So <clears throat> I'm from India, and I grew up in India. So I would actually pay entire annual plans in India, which is like literally twenty bucks for the entire year. So I'm paying nothing to Spotify. On Spotify. On exactly. Spotify. So Think about crazy. that. So you have access to, I, I can't remember, the number's huge. It's like yeah, it's the catalog of like 7 billion songs, 7 mm. million artists, that entire catalog of content, the world's music is available for you. For, I think in America, we pay $120 a year. Uh, right. People. So if you look at the average gamer spend, the average gamer spends that per, per month. And so from a media perspective, to me, music is just mispriced. And part of that is their, the products. They, the music industry kind of uses their bread and butter. They don't adapt much. And after I went to tech, I remember looking back at my time in music and thinking, this is interesting. They just don't think like the tech industry. And this is often why they, they continue to get disrupted, meaning they, you know, the music industry doesn't own a piece of Spotify, for example. Um, but they, I, I, I will give the music industry credit. They're very good at one thing, which is marketing. And so right. if you are an artist, um, one of the main things you need is marketing. And so if you go to one of the major labels, they have that skill nailed. They're very good at developing and marketing artists. Um, but they just don't think outside the box to develop more products, to develop more, more artists. Uh, and so when I say the music is, industry is broken, that's how we think of it. That makes sense. So I earlier told you about this video that I watched, the evil, the evil music industry. And the concept over there was that creators were really good. They just want to focus on creating. They just want to focus on creating good music and they want someone else to take care about all business. Is that the main reason why this is all is happening? And when the responsibility goes to a record label, they are just focused on making more money. So they just focus on marketing, not actually innovating more products. Uh, I, for the most part, I, I believe so. So if you, they have, so their existing products is the record label makes royalties from streaming. Um, and so they take a percentage of that and they take a, a percentage of the sync licensing. Uh, and, and so if you get a big enough artist, that's a big check. And so what they do, which makes sense, is, is most record labels, the majors, will spend the majority of their time developing what they think can be those top 0.1% of artists that pay back. And so they, they're, kind of, they're kind of like venture capitalists in a way. And so yeah. they will make bets on a few artists. Actually, the number is not large of artists that are signed to a major label per year. It's in the hundreds. And then they will try to develop them and they'll see which ones are working. And then they will pour more marketing fuel onto that fire. And that's what pays them back. But that's what pays them back in those limited products that are available. And so what the music industry does is they are very good at monetizing large audiences. What they don't build products for is engaged audiences. So this is what the games industry does really well. And so the games industry can take really engaged players and monetize them disproportionately. And that's actually the whole free-to-play industry 
of games. And so music hasn't yet figured out ways to better monetize the engaged fan base. All of their products are priced the same. They treat all fans equally. Uh, and so they haven't found a way to find those top 10% of fans. And so you, if, if you can monetize engagement effectively, there is a whole massive segment of artists that become unlocked. And so you unlock the huge mid-market, which is the majority of artists that may have smaller but more engaged fan bases. Hmm. What do you now that you mention about this correlation between the video industry or the music industry and the video game industry? What I'm, I'm just thinking about this. So, what is a alternative or what is a similar to record label in video game industry? Is there a similar business sort of magnate that is helping all these video gamers or gamers in general? Um, meaning and professional how are they gamers. Yeah, pro professional gamers, and how are they operating differently such that the value is actually being captured? Oh, I see. So the, the parallel I would would the parallel that I would use in in gaming is more game developers, and mm. so you have you have a good sized market of indie developers in games, and these look more like the mid market artists. And so these mm. indie developers they launch their games on Steam, uh, they go direct to their fan base, uh, and they build for that smaller fan base, uh, and they're able to monetize that. That's the space that I saw in games that doesn't exist in music, which is you don't right. have a mid-market of, of more indie artists that are able to work within the current mainstream industry, which is the, the mainstream industry is really catered for the top. Uh, and right. I say 0.1%, the, the Doja Cats, the Weekends, those type of artists that are able to pay them back. Um, and that partly because the music industry gives advances. Uh, game developers are different. Game developers work through platforms that allow them to go direct. And hmm. so they don't have, there's less middlemen in, in the game industry. Exactly. That makes that makes so much sense. Like there are less middlemen in gaming industry. That's why they're accruing more capital or accruing more or capturing more value over there. Uh, but this is very interesting. So because you come with that background of music and video game, you can you can think much more in a holistic way that, okay, what are the parallels over here? How can we improve the industry? Uh, you also mentioned Doja Cat. So what do you think about how TikTok has changed in general, the music industry? What what have you seen? It, so we, we think it's great. So if you look at the, the music industry in the 90s, artists had to go through a major label. So 90s mm. and previously, which is in order to become a successful artist, you had to get a physical product in a store. Uh, which in some ways is a good thing because you sold that physical product for $20 a unit. But what that meant is you had to have a label to distribute you, to distribute mm. your music, get you into stores. And there was few artists that you could fit on shelves. So fewer artists were able to go and do that. Uh, now you, you're able to distribute your music directly with the, with the, uh, there's distribution platforms that you sign up for DistroKid and TuneCore and CD Baby, and that gets your music out there. And you can go on social media and build a fan base. Uh, which is allowed for more artists to get into the game uh, and, and and develop more, I would say, more niche communities around their work. So that's that's a change for the better. More artists are able to become artists and mm. build a following. Um, and, and social media is giving them that opportunity. What we think is missing in the landscape is, is great. They have a place to go promote and for fans to see their work. They have a place to go get their music heard, but they don't have places to go directly to their fans. 
And so everything right. is going through, so social media owns your audience and they monetize that through ads. Uh, Spotify owns your audience and they pay you a royalty to do that and they monetize it through ads. And so as an artist, almost every platform you're going through has that business model uh, and they don't have any option to go direct to their fans. Most artists don't know how to get in contact with their fans. They don't know who the top 10% of fans are, uh, but they would love to identify them and engage more with them. Right. These beats, they just stick in your mind, like especially when they keep on repeating this for 15 seconds again and again on TikTok, on Reels. It's really cool. Also, I believe it's really good for the the actors or the artists in general, because this is what I'm seeing in India right now. In India, there are some primetime TV shows uh, similar mm -hmm. to, let's say, American Idol, similar to uh, some comedy shows that just like you know air at 9 p.m every single day and all indian families watch it right so mm -hmm. earlier when a new movie was coming out and the actor had to promote that movie they would go on these tv shows for one hour uh again one hour is what it's displayed to the or what it's shown to the audience it might take mm -hmm. more than four hours behind four to five hours behind with all the preparation and stuff now what these actors are doing they have the hook step they have the hook song they would get mm -hmm. like 100 influencers in line they will bring them all in one studio and they were like all right guys keep on making this dance a reel or TikTok with me, I'll do the hook song, I'll do the hook step with you, and you just put it out to your audience. And that's how they're reaching way more audience now with less, with way less time effort. I thought that mm -hmm. was really interesting. That's super interesting. Yeah, I mean, TikTok is a great platform in the sense that they, so they, unlike Instagram and Twitter, where you have to develop a following first to get started, TikTok just sends your content and it's based on hmm. the, the actual specific piece of content versus having a follower base. And so you can reach, if you have great content, you can reach a much wider audience, uh, which which has unlocked a ton of value. Uh, but we're, we're we're bullish on user generated content in general, which is it's when you remove the gatekeeper, it's amazing what people come up with. To to Definitely. exactly the story you just told, if you if you give people the tools, they will far out <laughs> create than you had, could have imagined. And you, if you look at these uh, user generated platforms, they are far outreaching the you know the Hollywood gated content that is scripted and, um, you know, takes a long time and money to create and people are choosing to watch somebody create something in their bedroom on TikTok. Definitely. Definitely. All right. So let's get into NFTs now. When did you first get introduced to NFTs? What were you doing? How did you get into this Twitter hype all around NFT? Yeah, so I, I got into crypto early in 2012. Uh, I worked okay. at a, 2012, yeah, very, 2012 right. very early uh, in kind of a funny way. Uh, I worked at a startup and I sat with the engineers. And when we would go to lunch, the engineers, someone would pay and everyone else had to pay them back in crypto. And so I, I wow. had to figure out how to get a crypto wallet. At the time, I think Bitcoin was under $20. And yeah. so you, I, I would spend my, I would go home from work and I would spend my nights researching, okay, how do I get a crypto wallet? How do I send Bitcoin? I, I like going to lunch with them and I have to figure out how to pay them back. And was then, it like a tradition uh, that you have to only pay with crypto? It was just like a fun thing they did. I mean, there okay, were just, crazy. all of them had crypto. They thought it was funny money. And so it was just, it was just a fun thing. You would pay one person back in Bitcoin and then the next lunch, they would use that Bitcoin to pay the next person. It was just between us. They didn't think much of it. Uh, right. But because I am not from a engineering background, I had to go figure out, okay, at the time, there's very few Bitcoin tools. I remember I originally bought on Mt. Gox, which was the exchange that ended up going down. But this was many, many years before that. And so the, the Bitcoin experience was absolutely awful, not user-friendly whatsoever. So as an engineer, it was quite hard. So my instinct was, oh, in order to learn this, I'll just go to some meetups. And so mm -hmm. I started going to Bitcoin meetups. Uh, and the meetups had like 20 people in 2012. And that included um, uh, Vitalik 
from Ethereum was at almost every single one of them uh, talking about what he was building on Ethereum, uh, Brian Armstrong, uh, oh, wow. the founder of Ripple. Um, it was very early people. And to be honest, sitting there, I thought most of them were crazy, but I thought a lot of the ideas and the concepts were really interesting. Um, so that's how I originally got into crypto. And I remember being fascinated by just a lot of the theory and the economics side of it. And so back then, a lot of the, you know, it was a lot of, um, we can use this tech to get around a lot of systems that we don't trust. So a lot of libertarians who didn't trust the government and the monetary system and a lot of discussions about the central bank and how, you know, how our, our federal reserve works. And I thought that was really interesting. And I learned a lot at the time. And then I kind of dropped out during the ICO craze. So during the ICO craze, I was like, mm, don't really get this. Not sure it makes sense. Uh, but I've always been a crypto fan. So I, you know, I kept going to meetups for many, many years. Um, okay. One of one of my friends that I brought to the meetups actually ended up investing in a crypto mining company. Uh, now he's a big NFT investor. And had I made the decisions he made, it would be a much different situation. <laughs> and millions. Yeah, exactly. He did very, very well. Uh, and he, you know, he had been around for a year. And so he had seen many cycles. And so when he went to those early meetups, he was like, oh, I've seen these cycles before. Step one is we need to figure out how to mine the coin, get it, get uh, get, make it more available. This is how this system works. And then hmm. two, we're going to need exchanges. We're going to need it to make it available for people. So then he invested in exchanges. And so he's invested at every phase. Uh, so I started getting back into it about three years ago when Web3 was starting to get popular. And so crypto was kind of morphing from just, you know, the Bitcoin and Ethereum to people starting to build a full ecosystem. And that's what felt like it was, was missing for many, many years. And I felt like was overshadowed during the ICO craze is there's this entire ecosystem of people building on top of this incredible technology, which is blockchain. Uh, hmm. So I started becoming interested in, oh, what are people building? What are, what are the applications that are starting to work? Uh, and that's, that's how I started digging in. And I was at the same time interested in the creator economy and talking to lots of creators. And a lot of creators actually happened to be in the NFT space trying to figure it out for themselves. Uh, and so that's, that's how I started getting back into it is mostly talking to creators that were starting to use early platforms back in 2019 to figure out how to make money, how to monetize. Wow. Okay. What do you think is different? Because you have seen the crypto uh, Wild West of 2011 and you are seeing right now what's happening on Twitter. What do you think is different except for the fact that right now even 12-year-old kids are talking about NFTs? And what's different from 2011 when I first got started? Yeah, from the crypto scene in 2011 that you saw in mm -hmm. meetups to what we are seeing now on Twitter. I mean, the sheer size. <laughs> right, the size is definitely in, huge. In 2011, it was 20 people. Uh, and most um, the these meetups were mostly technologists, uh, so people that were fascinated by the technology and what they could use it for. And so, how could you, if you have an encrypted network and you can publicly track transactions, what can you build on top of that? And so that was the excitement back then. Uh, what's that's changed a lot from now? It feels like the conversations on Twitter are not about the technology or blockchain. Some of them still are, uh, but right. most of them are about the the applications on top, which I actually hmm. think is a welcomed change. Uh, okay. Just, I think in the last 10 years, you've seen a lot of, you've already seen highs and lows and you've seen a lot of things be created. You've seen a lot of things that didn't work. Uh, most of this is just experimentation. Uh, I think it's actually a good thing that there's hype because that encourages more builders to go in and experiment. And I still think we are incredibly early and that there is going to be a lot of value created and most of it's going to be things we haven't even expected could be disrupted with this technology yet. Um, and that's just going to take time. Right. Definitely. So what do you think about the entire NFT? What is wrong with NFTs right now? 
Ooh, there's a lot. <laughs> uh, one, it, the obvious one, user experience. Uh, so mm. the user experience is still not great. Um, it's quite tough for someone to get into this ecosystem. Uh, part of that user experience problem is the fraud problem uh, mm. because there's not great user experiences built on top of, of these layers and of these blockchains. Um, you see a lot of fraud, a lot of scams. Uh, people don't know how to keep their crypto or NFTs safe. And unfortunately, uh, what comes along with that is that that's what the press likes to talk about. Right. Yeah, the press will, they don't like new things. Uh, the media tends to not like new things. They like stories that show that new things are bad. Uh, and so by the nature of the space being new and the, the experiences being new and kind of clunky, uh, the press loves to talk about that. Uh, so that's, you know, that's, that's one of the biggest things that I think is still a problem is the just user experiences is, is a major issue. Um, man, the list is so long of the things that are yeah. <laughs> need to be built. And like that, that's the first one I think that unlocks a lot. That makes sense. Right now, especially just a week ago, I was reading the news that uh, CryptoPunk that was bought at 1.3 million, something around that is now being sold at 100K. So it has lost 10 times its value. Wow. So you're reading all these crazy stuff. What do you think about the NFT valuations in general, the way NFTs like Bored Ape and CryptoPunks were valued? Uh, tough to say. I mean, the market's not that efficient yet, so hmm. it's hard to comment on the value because it's the price that someone's willing to pay in a true marketplace. Right. Uh, I, I think what we'll see emerge from this is that people will move more towards utility. And so I think you hear this a lot now is, is that people, exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I've been saying that for the last year is there's just not enough utility and utility is different for the person. So for someone buying a bored ape, owning the IP of that ape to create a cartoon or hmm. a clothing line could be utility. Um, so it depends on the buyer and the audience. And so I think a lot of people use utility as this broad sweeping term. If it ha there actually has to be something physical there of value. I don't think it works like that at all. A utility could be anything of value. Uh, it's I, it's just hasn't been because it was because the PFP projects were working where uh, people were developing these, you know, these JPEGs that were very popular and getting traded. Uh, there hasn't been that much thought, or maybe not thought deep exploration of utility for different audiences yet. And that is what's right. going to happen now, which is exciting. Definitely. I think when you talk about that, I just remembered that one of the board ape, one of the owners of board ape, they were planning to sort of create a movie or some sort of cartoons and now their yeah. board ape is now stolen. So they don't know, do they still have the right to do more ahead with that or not? So they're in a tricky position. What do you think uh, will go is going to happen? Like what are some other creative ways that you are seeing people using their NFTs? Uh, creative ways that they're using their NFTs. Uh, I'm see so what I I'm mainly in the creator space and work closely with mm. artists. Uh, so I talk to a lot of artists that are doing interesting. They're using it to gate content, and so mm. we see it as like a better way to do Patreon, uh, which right. is one way. So it, they are air dropping content when they want to to their NFT holders, and that's something we enable. Uh, we are seeing more experiential NFTs, so we're we're quite bullish on the experiential side. Um, which is, you know, is it, does it have a, does it help you, is it a collectible from a, something you experienced? Is it a, you know, a concert collectible or a sports game you went to or a moment that you had, or do you get an experience with a person? Do you get a one-on-one -on -one with an artist? Um, and we're seeing lots of artists offer that. We think it's cool. Um, we're seeing a lot of NFTs that are tied to physical value. And so actually tied to 
physical pieces of art um, right. or things of value. There's a company called 4K that, that we know here in LA that connects it to luxury goods. And so you can trade that NFT, you can trade your luxury good without you know, ever having to deal with the transportation of that good. Um, they do that on the back end. Uh, so there, there's lots of different uses for it. I think the things that we get, I get less excited about are some of the financial products, um, which is NFTs that are selling securities or royalties, mm. uh, future, um, um, it, just, just because we, we're not sure that's a, you know, that's a better route to do it yet. Uh, it right. needs to be regulated and a lot of people are not, um, getting rewarded in those ecosystems. Uh, so less, right. less excited about that side of it. Yeah. Do you still go to meetups? Like if you're in LA, what are the sort of meetups that are happening in LA and are you going to them? Oh, I'm not. Uh, so the Bay Area meetups were so good. Uh, right. I haven't been to many here in LA, but the Bay Area just has such high concentration of hmm. people in tech and people who are so deep into certain aspects. Um, in tech that it's hard to beat the Bay Area meetups, but I, I should probably, I should probably start going. Right, definitely. Right now I'm reading about Launch House. I believe Launch House, they are doing some oh, really yeah. good stuff in LA. Uh, they recently are doing something around building in the bear markets and they are bringing uh, investors from Tiger Global. I believe they are bringing someone from A16Z. A16Z oh, cool. is going super hard right now super on crypto. Super hard, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they are, I talked to them the other day, they have 400 people. They are just a massive And they just built this team in the last one year. Crypto team, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. $4.5 billion fund. $4.5 billion fund, yeah. But I In addition their, to the existing $2 billion fund. Exactly. Crazy. I mean, I see their vision. They have just the resources. Hmm, and so when you resources. are a founder and you go to your VCs and you're like, I need this, and they have 400 people to, to work with that can go and get you those, it just gives companies an, an insane advantage. Right, definitely, definitely. Now, let's talk about how musicians can get paid, how small musicians can make money using Supermassive in general. Let's talk about Supermassive. Let's talk about the story of how it began. And how did you meet your co-founder? I met my co-founder through the YC community. Okay. And so oh, I was the founding partner. They, whatever they that have is. a so they have a yeah they have the 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 founder yeah. Tinder for founder. founders basically exactly yeah. yeah and so what I had done so I I joined startup school and then I built a profile on their founder finder and I posted a notion <laughs> doc of, of the research that I had done and so I posted about here's what I think is not working in the music industry here's a, a solution that I propose and my co-founder uh, uh, Mark he he read this notion doc and he's a he's a former artist so he graduated the Berkeley School of Music. Um, he's a jazz pianist. Uh, he was a record producer for many years and he read it uh, and he was like, I, I don't work in the music industry anymore. I don't want to mess with it. Uh, but I read your doc and I have a lot of opinions. And so we got on a Zoom and we just started debating over, would you solve it this way? Would you solve it this way? Um, and we just had a great time. We're, we just started brain, instantly started brainstorming solutions. He, he instantly got the problem. Instantly, he know, knew the industry. And so we just got straight to solutions. Um, and so I met him about a year and a half ago, and then we just spent, we spent quite a bit of time researching. And so we wanted to talk to more artists. And so we spent a ton of time just reaching out to artists that we knew and said, what's working for you and what's not. Uh, so we talked to, we talked to a bunch of artists. We talked to a bunch of creators. We spent six months doing that, um, of just doing interviews before we even hmm. started building. Six months? Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. And how are you reaching these artists? Because artists are not someone who always roam around with their AirPods and laptop and they're like, all right, it's time for Zoom call. <laughs> That's true. So a lot of it was through our network. So friends of mine who are artists from, you know, my universal days or living in LA, lots of friends of Mark's um, that, that are artists that, you know, that are friendlies. Like, hey, hmm. would you mind chatting for 10 minutes? Just want to chat with you about what you're working on, how it's going. Uh, right. So yeah, mostly friendlies. 
Definitely. When you're talking about this entire conversation around, like, you know, you hopped on a Zoom call and you were debating about the ideas, the opinions around music industry, very similar. I can recall, like, you know, just last year I was building a dating app with my buddy, with my childhood buddy. And it's the same thing. We all know about dating. We all have different opinions about dating. And we both are like, we are two guys who are talking about, oh, this is how girls would think about dating is what we should do. Totally, uh-huh. like, you know, uh, base, like baseless, but it's super fun when you do that. But mm-hmm. all right, let's mo- go ahead in the conversation. So what what were the pain points that you thought that these artists were having and how were you able to solve them? Yeah. So we, I mean, the big problem for artists is that is around those products, which is what products do artists have to monetize? Uh, Hmm. And so they, it's either you send your music to distribution, which is streaming, which the numbers are quite low. And so the Spotify numbers are, there's 14,000 artists out of 7 million artists on Spotify that make over 50 K per year. And so several of the artists we talked to were making 10 to 30K per year in Spotify streaming, but that is not enough to sustain as an artist. And then the rest of it was made up by going on tour. And so most of the Mm. revenue was by going on tour. And in through 2020 to to now, until the last five months, artists weren't on tour. And so everything, their revenue essentially dried up. So they were just relying on Spotify streams. And so we were asking them if if you were to, what do you think is the thing that is missing for you? And almost all of them said the ability to go directly to their fans. And so we we had a strong hypothesis that that today there's just not tools for creators in general to, to use to better monetize their engaged fan base. And so we're like, let's just build it product by product. Let's, mm-hmm. and that's that's where we actually started on with Web3 and NFTs is, is we're, we're like, let's just keep innovating products and we're gonna start with digital collectibles and we're gonna add more experiences to that. And then we're just gonna keep adding more products for artists to sell directly to their fans. And we're gonna make that super easy. And so the goal is to build all the things around it and so that an artist doesn't even, if they if they wanna work with a record label to distribute music, that's awesome, but they should be able to come to our platform and launch a bunch of other products directly to their fans and start making money from another revenue stream. That's pretty cool. And how many artists are right now making money from Supermassive? So we are actually pre-launch. Uh, okay. So we, we're launching in July. We have a bunch of fun campaigns happening. And then we have several artists that are booked for drops. And so what, okay. they're, what they're doing is they're releasing their music as a limited edition collectible. And so they have a, a main tier of, of that track or EP of, or album with li- limited tier, limited number. So they might be selling 100 to 400 editions of that. Uh, of that track. And then they have a premium tier and the premium tier includes a bunch of bonus material. And so we have artists that have demos. They have actually content of them telling the story behind that album or the track. Um, we have several uh, EDM artists that are working on remixes and different editions that go into the premium tier. Uh, so that's what we're launching with in July and August. So that's our first product. Uh, and it's more, it's, it's less crypto-y and it feels more like... Utility. Um, yeah, exactly. So it feels more like um, our uh, sister platform would be like NBA Top Shot, where mm. it's very accessible to a mainstream fan. A fan can go to the platform and purchase in US dollars and they're collecting because they actually really like that content or they really remember that game. Um, this is similar. So a lot of the artists we're working with have an existing fan base. Those fans are super engaged. It's not a massive fan base, but it's a good size fan base. Um, and they want to create something special for them. So something specific for them that they can sell a limited edition of. 
That is very cool. So let's take an example. So let's say, uh, who's the singer that's coming to my mind? Let's say Sean Mendes. So Sean Mendes mm-hmm. came, came up with a track. And now you mentioned that there are two tiers. Number one is the actual track, three minute track. And number two is the track plus additional content about the behind the stories, whatever, why, what was the inspiration behind this? Maybe there's a girlfriend of X uh, who, whose story is this based, whose story is based on this song, something like that. So what's going to happen now? Like when someone buys, let's say, uh, Sean Mendes is only selling hundred of these three minute tracks. So when someone buys that, what does happen over here? So I, I'm just curious. So, so yeah, what's the user experience? So when yeah, you purchase what's the user that, experience? yeah, so when you purchase that track, it goes into your wallet as an NFT and then you can listen to it in our, in our player. And so as long as your NFT is connected to your wallet, you can listen to that track. Um, anything in the premium tier works the same way. And so we allow you to play it. It's sort of similar to how the Web2 comparison would be Patreon, where hmm. you pay for access to content. This is essentially access to content, but it's it's ownership or membership based. And so if right. you own that NFT, you access the content. If you want to resell it, you can go and resell it. So we allow a user to go and resell that on the platform. Um, or to port it to another big marketplace if they want to go sell it on OpenSea. And okay. the artist earns a uh, secondary on every sale. Oh, I was just going to say the comparison that I would use is, you know, when artists creates limited edition vinyls, uh, which hmm. is very common today, uh, when those vinyls are resold, the artist doesn't make anything. Uh, so the hmm. difference here is when these digital collectibles are resold, the artist always earns on every sale. Definitely. That's the best part of NFTs, their royalties. Exactly. Uh, but I'm also curious. So does that mean that people who do not own that NFT cannot listen to the song? Yes. Yeah. So we gate the content. Yeah. And so it doesn't mean that the artist can't release the song. So it's only on the, it's only for the NFT. So we have some artists we're working with that have music in their catalog that they only want to share with their super fans. And they, they're going to do that through, through NFTs on the platform. And then we have other artists who are selling a limited edition NFT of a track that they are going to distribute on Spotify. Right. Uh, And so it depends. This is, it's sort of artist choice. Hmm. And for the ones that they are going to distribute on the platforms as well. Do they also, like, do also people have the option to own that song? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So okay. they can still, so you can still own the NFT. Right. That song. Right. Yeah. And what some artists might do is they might have a different version. And so mm-hmm. we've, some artists are doing remix versions or alternative versions that go into the NFT. Um, and, and some artists are, are not. So they might have a single where, you know, only a hundred people own that NFT. Um, and then the NFT is just a token to that a membership with that artist, meaning the artist can continue to drop more content with them. So they may own an NFT of a Shawn Mendes song that's already popular on Spotify, hmm. but they've now have a hundred people that have identified themselves as we've purchased this digital collectible. We are super fans, um, and we allow Shawn Mendes to drop more to those those super fans, and so to add stuff to their wallet. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, the only thing that I'm thinking about right now is let's say. I'm not a super fan of Shawn Mendes. I'm just a fan. Uh, I only like to hear his most popular songs and I only listen to them because it has the social credibility now that, okay, it's been heard 1 billion times on YouTube now. That's the reason why I was motivated to listen it on the first place. And then I liked it. Now, if Shawn Mendes just drops a new song that is not being distributed anywhere and I cannot hear it, I can only buy it and only then listen to it. Uh, would that work? Would that work or not? I'm just thinking about that. Probably not for probably not for that fan. So for yeah, you as yeah. a, you have to be a super fan to do you that. You have to be yeah. a super fan. Yeah, and <laughs> right. it's, I mean this exists. So if you look at uh, Taylor Swift and Justin Bieber, both have massive fan clubs that hmm. they have entire organizations that run their fan club, and it's still just a small percent of their audience that chooses to be involved in the fan club, and it's a paid membership. Okay. Uh, so it's you know this is not a hundred percent of the artists' fans. 
um, hmm. that are going to purchase an NFT or even want to be in the 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 Bieber fan club. Right, right. That makes sense. And can you actually give a figure? So let's say for a, a singer, again, I'm new to the music industry. I don't know the, how the numbers work, but let's say a singer who has, let's say, 50,000 streams on Spotify per month. How much would one NFT would be valued? And how much will they be able to sell it for? Or in general, how much will be able they will be able to make from these NFTs? Uh, we will see. So our 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 platform is mainly for more accessible NFTs, and so our NFTs are lower price, but uh, more uh, more additions. Uh, the other platforms, mm. a lot of them are one of one. And so it's, you know, one of one that's a very high price. Uh, we think that if you can sell, you know, more, you know, one versus a hundred is a big difference, especially depending on the, the price point. We actually think artists earn more from selling more additions. Right. Yeah. So an, it's interesting. An artist that has 50,000 monthly listeners on Spotify is not earning from Spotify. So for them, if their NFT drop earns $10,000, $5,000, $10,000, and they want to do several drops throughout the year, that could be an incredible source of income for them. And they may not need a, a massive fan base to do that. Definitely. That makes sense. And I'm curious. So on your website or in general, I thought that you guys were using a lot of words, Web 2.5. How is that different from Web 3? What does that mean, 2.5? <laughs> it's, it's kind of our own made up term. Uh, we, we actually think that most people are not ready for Web3. Uh, and if you actually look at the real Web3 community is quite small. And so what Web2.5 means to us is being the on-ramp to Web3, mm. which for us, that means accessibility. So we want to be the most accessible music digital collectibles platform. And so people can buy with their credit card or US dollars. It's really easy to use. You don't have to know how to use Web3 in order to purchase on our platform or be part of our community. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. They can purchase via the credit cards, but still it will be, let's say, minted on the chain as exactly. an NFT. Exactly. Okay. So you are still participating in Web3. You're getting all the benefits of Web3, but the user experience feels more like Web2. Right, right. And let's let's think about this. So let's say in five years, Supermassive is massive. And how would, how would the user experience look like over here? Uh, I believe that in your mind, you would be thinking that there's one link that they just put, just like a link tree they would put on their Instagram, on their Twitter. That's where a user would go. And now what do they see over there in five years, let's say? Exactly. So we're, we're actually quite focused on the artist profile, which is when, when an artist runs a drop on the platform, there's a link to their profile. Their profile is going to show all past drops. And the, the vision is to continue to build out products and so have more things that artists can sell right on that profile. And so in the future, the goal is that an artist can just replace the link in their bio right to their commerce. Uh, so mm. we, actually, we think commerce is broken for artists in the sense that artists, when you go to their social media, which is where their most engaged fans are, uh, they are sending them to a link tree, which is just sending them, sending their most engaged fans to all of these platforms that don't help them make money. And so what artists used to do is that used to go to their website, which would have their commerce, other things you could buy from that artist, including become memberships, become a member of their, their fan club. The downside of that is those websites were static, meaning mm. once a fan had visited, they had no reason to come back. And so we think you actually need a platform for commerce that looks more like social media. And so that's actually our broader vision is we want to create the, the dynamic commerce uh, for artists where they just have a profile page that includes everything that can go directly to their fans. Right. Makes sense. And that's where they can see everything. They can see the social media. They can see the last song and they can also do the commerce. Exactly. Right. That makes sense. And 
Now, I think a really interesting tweet that I saw on your on Supermassive tweet, Twitter feed, I believe, was simply the fact that creators will now focus on quality over quantity just because of this new revenue stream. And I thought that made a lot of sense now. Like if you are, because now you're not worried about that, okay, I want to like, you know, go big because if I don't have at least a million streams on Spotify, I'm not going to get paid. You're just, you're just thinking that, all right, I have 100 super fans who love me. I just want to create the best art for them. I'm going to create one. If they're going to buy from an NFT, I'm set for life. So what was the thought process behind that? And how do you think that this is going to go ahead? Yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly it. So part, well, a lot of what we hear from creators in general is that the social media flywheel is about about quantity. And so mm. that if it, EDM producers disproportionately earn on Spotify because they just produce more content. And so if you look at the long tail on Spotify, EDM, because it doesn't require you to go into a studio and record, it, there is you know elements that are recorded, but there's more that can be done on a computer. And so they can turn out more content. On social media, you are rewarded in the algorithm for churning out more content. If you stop posting, social media is going to punish you. Your next post is not going to go to as broad of an audience. And in order to build your audience, it's just constantly churning out content. Um, creators also feel this with subscriptions. And so so services like Patreon, in order to maintain a subscription to your fans, you need to have content that maintains that. And that has to go out every single week, every single month. Um, and so that a lot of creators talk to us about the content machine, which is hmm. really, really tough for artists. And so artists have a very different cycle. Um, if you want to make a quality record, that takes a lot of time. That takes a lot of time with a studio in a studio. It takes a lot of time writing. You're going to have a lot of collaborators that you're working with uh, to really make great music. Uh, and so they just need a different system that allows them to focus on quality. Um, and we believe that fans care a lot about that, meaning they don't just need more, more, more. They need high quality content as well. Definitely. Who's the most popular artist that you come across while doing research, while building Supermassive? Oh, the most, the most popular artists in general. I mean, lots of the most of the major artists are already thinking through their NFT strategy. Like Kanye just mm. announced today um, that he's okay. he's thinking through it. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of big artists that are are thinking about it. Um, I'm trying to think. There's so what's interesting for us is there's a lot of artists that you've never heard of who've hmm. been incredibly successful in the NFT space, and a lot of that has just been them experimenting. So trying different things um, and they are, you know, they have become, they, they've made more than they ever would have made through the existing music industry uh, by being early and experimental. In, Can you put that into numbers? Like how much and what's the difference? Uh, what the difference we is? Actually, yeah. I, we have a chart that shows, um, I don't have it open right now, but we have a chart that shows some of these emerging artists. Um, so one of them is Verite. Um, she's known in the NFT com uh, community. Uh, she, she had a following as an artist, but she was not a, a massive artist. Uh, and she's right. made many millions through, through her NFT digital sales. Right. I actually saw your tweet around the A16Z state of crypto, where they mentioned that how much creators are making from each of these platforms. So Facebook, it's 10 cents. YouTube is $3 and OpenSea is $174,000. So that is crazy. Like this mm -hmm. means that uh, also like recently people, like I know people, uh, nobody knew about him. He was just creating digital art every single day, posting on Instagram. And then suddenly one day, his entire artwork is sold for $79 million, something so like I that. Did, I did meet That's people. Crazy. He's a famous person that I did meet recently. Uh, oh, you met him. Okay. Yeah, and he's just a very—he's a true artist, very normal guy, um, like quirky. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's a normal guy. <laughs> yeah, and had no idea this would become what it was. He really likes creating, and he had hmm. a—he wanted to do something different, uh, and so he right. was just disproportionately rewarded for taking a risk, which good on him. 
that makes sense do you think he's uh, like is he still doing art i'm not following i'm not keeping up with people but is he still creating art or is he just like oh i'm done like i have made my life now my oh, life no, is he's still he's still creating so he's doing it's actually interesting he's doing a bunch he's actually trying to think through this products like what else can he create hmm. uh so when i met him he was working on a project where he took the digital art that his collectors were purchasing and he made them physical pieces of art and so it was like screens that had the digital arts that were encapsulated um, and then he would like sign it for them and so he was he's trying to he's just trying to keep innovating which is cool right so he's, right. he's still working i would say harder than ever definitely definitely i believe like now he has the torch to move the art industry forward uh, exactly but that's really cool yeah i'm actually curious so one another really cool story you mentioned was val kilmer uh you had lunch with him what was that story like? Because I had no idea who Val Kilmer was, honestly. I just searched it, um, searched it up before this conversation. And I found that, okay, he was in Top Gun. That's that's all I need to know. That's funny. Um, that goes along with my like famous people I have not recognized. Uh, so when I, when I first moved to LA, I worked at a restaurant as a waitress in Malibu, the classic job when you first moved to LA. Uh, and we had a lot of celebrities. Um, and I actually was one of the few waitresses that was not an aspiring actress. And so I would often be, I would often be chosen to work shifts, which a lot of celebrities would come in. Um, but, the, uh, the time that, so I, I, one time was working lunch. It was super empty. Um, there was a very nice gentleman having lunch with his son and they were just really fun. They were cracking jokes. They were chit chatting. Um, and I was cracking, you know, cracking jokes with them and they were like, sit down, hang out. There's no one in the restaurant. So I'm sitting with them. We're talking about stuff. And then, uh, at the end, uh, I made some comment. He was, he was signing the check and he was like, Oh, math has never been my strong suit. And I was like, Oh, what do you, you know, what do you do? <laughs> and he's like, I'm an actor. And I was like, Oh, cool. Would I, would I know any of your work? And his son is kind of giggling. Um, and he's like, Oh, maybe, um, uh, have you, I, I do movies. I was like, Oh, cool. Would, would I have seen any of your movies? He's, he starts mentioning movies. He's like the saint. Um, Oh my God. Oh, heat. And none of these movies I've ever seen. So I've, <laughs> I'm just looking at him blankly and I'm like, Oh, cool. And you can tell it's a blank stare. Uh, and then he's like, top gun. I was in top gun. And I was like, Oh, cool. I saw that. What did you play? And now his son is like really <laughs> laughing and he's, he's like, Oh, I was a fighter pilot. And I was like, cool. Okay, cool. I'm thinking he's like some background you know, right. pilot in the film, it's LA, you know, most of us are extras anyway. Uh, and he, the, he leaves. And then, uh, one of the other waitresses, like an hour later was like, how was your lunch with Val Kilmer? And I was like, what? And she's like the man and his son Val Kilmer. And I was like, oh my God. And so it all came flooding to me like, oh my God, he's, he was the main character in Top Gun. <laughs> right. right. So my friends wow. thought the story was so funny that they sent me the entire DVD discography of Val Kilmer. <laughs> and then I actually ran into him maybe like three months later at the grocery store and he remembered me and he was super friendly. Uh, I think, I think he was, I think it's kind of nice for him to you right. know, chat with a, a Canadian that has no idea who he is <laughs> and have a normal person <laughs> chat. Exactly. I feel he yeah. would be like, all right, finally someone is talking to me normally and not starstruck. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, that's really cool. But hey, Jenna, this was a really cool conversation. So we talked about the music industry, the video game, Elon Musk and everything. But hey, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. Thank you so much for having me. This is super fun.